This is Sea Power, a podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carton, Assistant Professor at the Naval War College, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. Ayumi Taraoka, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin's Clement Center for National Security. She visited our students and faculty at the War College to lecture on her research on Japanese views on the defense of Taiwan and the U.S.-Japan alliance. Our conversation today is one of several we're having here at Sea Power about the Taiwan issue, for lack of a better word which is arguably the premier strategic problem facing the U.S. Navy and international security more broadly, even in the midst of a Russian war in Europe. Dr. Taraoko offers us a very valuable and deeply researched perspective that tackles one of the critical questions surrounding the Taiwan issue, namely the role of Japan. We cover the U.S. alliance system, Japan-U.S. relations in particular, and try to benefit from her understanding of how leaders in Tokyo think about the security and diplomatic challenge presented by the PRC's interest in unification with Taiwan. The views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. So without further ado, Dr. Taraoka, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're, we're delighted to have you here at the War College. And to lead off, I hope you could tell us a bit more about your research background, the kinds of problems that you study, and how you came about your specific interest in alliance politics and the U.S.-Japan alliance. Thank you so much, Isaac. Uh, thank you thank you for having me for this great program. I'm excited to be here and share my research. Uh, so the question of how I got interested in this question of U.S. alliances, uh, in particular U.S.-Japan alliance, I'm originally from Tokyo, Japan. I grew up there. And growing up uh, and being in, interested in politics in Japan, domestic politics and the relationship with Japan are so intertwined in Japanese domestic discourse. Uh, so I knew growing up that for a country like Japan, alliance with the United States was really fundamental pillar of its policymaking and its approach to the world. However, I didn't really understand how this institution worked and functioned. And if the alliances are means to end, what are the ends and how are we to evaluate the effectiveness of this institution? And so I started studying this uh, subject of international relations and U.S.-Japan relations and U.S. policy towards Asia. I got opportunities to study at Georgetown University, uh, study with people who teach the subject of U.S.-Japan alliance in the context of U.S. ground strategy and U.S. engagement with Asia. And that really put me in the perspective of understanding tremendous institutions that the United States has built over time since the end of World War II. The more you study it, the more you realize that you need to also understand how Chinese and Russians and North Koreans are reacting and perceiving the role of alliances. Because essentially, if the alliances of security architecture, you have allies and adversaries, potential adversaries. So these dynamics is what I'm interested in, and I got wonderful opportunity to work at Japan Chair at CSIS, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and then Japan Studies Program at CFR in Washington, D.C. as well, really learning about there are people who manage these relationships. Um, there are often called as alliance managers, but working at these think tanks, I realized these people who work behind the scene to manage relationships, try to understand each other country's 
perspectives, domestic politics around alliances are what keeps relationships together. And you cannot underestimate mm-hmm. the role that they play in behind the scenes. And those actions do not usually come out in the literature of international relations, but that's the reality of day-to-day management of relationship. And that has evolved into this security institution that lasted for decades. Can you give us an overview of the U.S. alliance structure in Asia, its members, the various ways in which their defense commitments are codified in treaties or other agreements, and some of the methods and mechanisms that you're referring to of alliance management? U.S. alliances in Asia are often traditionally depicted as hub and spoke system, where there is a big power like United States having a series of bilateral alliance uh, structure with states in Asia, starting with Japan, Republic of Korea. Uh, It used to be Republic of China, now Taiwan, that no longer exists as a treaty ally. Um, And then ANZUS Treaty with Australia and New Zealand, and of course with the Philippines. Um, And these bilateral alliances are similar in some way, structured um, somewhat differently of course, the ANZUS was, you know, three-party treaty, so that's a little different. Australia, New Zealand, and U.S. were on the same team fighting that battle in, in the Pacific War, so that was a little different in the context. U.S.-Japan alliance is also special because these are the two allies that used to be adversaries. So it also had a function of managing Japanese power and having this institution and the United States engaging with Japan, that was a way to stabilize Japan's power, Japanese uh, recovery from the war, and making sure there wouldn't be a second Pacific War in the region. Oftentimes, through these alliance structures and treaties, United States has a basing agreement. Uh, so United States also has physical presence in these countries. Of course, there are some moments where bases are reduced or kicked out, depending on the political context that they were in. But this is a sort of the overall structure and overview of how United States begun its alliance management business. And if you could give us a little bit more of a sense of the historical context in which this hub and spokes model arose, what's the significance of it being hub and spokes as compared to, say, the NATO structure in Europe? Right. Were the drivers that led the alliances that the United States has in East Asia to take the particular institutional forms that they have? So I think what's very different in Asia comparing to the origin of NATO is that U.S. already had engagement with the Philippines. And because U.S.-Japan treaty was so peculiar compared to other types of alliances that it was forming. Because it had been their former adversaries now in an alliance, you mean? Yes. Yeah. United States also had to manage this issue of other stakeholders in the region, Korea, Australia, even Taiwan, not wanting to be in this multilateral pack with Japan. Mm-hmm. There was a lack of trust toward Japanese intention still at the time, particularly from countries like Australia and, of course, Taiwan, Korea, too. But so the United States could not get much interest in f- forming this multilateral pact compared to NATO. 
in a sense, it was an only option available. There are some discussions about how intentional that structure was. Um, however, I would say that there was fair amount of reluctance from other allies, potential allies in Asia, to form such a multilateral pact with former adversary like or former colonial power like Japan. In presenting the case for alliance with the United States, what were the the regional threat perceptions of the various actors post-war looking out at their regional security environment is the principal problem the soviet union is it china is it north korea does it vary across the various partners and does that help us understand a little bit of how this hub and spokes model has been constructed yes so there are two civil wars going on in asia among koreans and among Chinese, two sides of China, uh, Taiwan Strait. So, for example, Republic of Korea still had intention to fight a war against North Koreans. They had strong antipathy towards North, North more than United States was willing to support their ambition towards, uh, towards the unification. The same applied to Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, uh, and at the time, Republic of China, they were far more strongly felt about unification than the United States was willing to support their ambition, military ambitions toward the mainland. At the same time, we had sort of anti-war Japanese sentiment in Japan. Um, Japanese were tired of fighting a war. Uh, they were not interested in fighting uh, wars that they were not even involved um, primarily, uh, and they were focused on recovering from war. So Yoshida Doctrine of Japan really focused on economic development, but in order to focus on economic development, Japanese used the alliance with the United States to help secure itself. And at the time, Japanese domestic politics was pretty divided between socialists and uh, liberal democratic conservatives um, who had very different views about how to engage with the world. So you do have different pictures of allies having very different intentions and how to use these alliance treaties and the relationship with the United States for their own ambitions. So, so even within the region, quite a lot of variation across the different alliance partners about what is it that they see as the value of an alliance with the United States. Kind of tacking on there, worth noting, as you, you alluded to, the Philippines had formerly been a colony of the United States. I think we didn't even mention the erstwhile Thailand alliance, but there, it's understandable. Right. Uh, it's understandable to miss it because it, it's quite different than the other alliances. It doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't even make that much sense to speak about it as apples to apples with the U.S.-Japan alliance because they obviously functionally are quite, right. quite distinct. Um, but before we turn full bore into that U.S.-Japan dynamic, I note, uh, of course, that the People's Republic of China is not part of the U.S. Alliance network. I'm wondering if you can speak in general terms or specific terms about how China has looked at the development of the U.S. Alliance system or architecture in East Asia and some of the ways that they have tried to deal with it, say, and help us understand a little bit how the various pieces of the U.S. security posture in Asia look from the perspective of Beijing and what what they can or have done to, to complicate the alliance structure. Uh, so China in the early um, 1950s really looked at United States as a primary enemy. Uh, therefore, all the U.S. allies, when they 
Chinese engage with them, they tried to really tear apart the U.S. alliances systems and uh, try to entice U.S. allies to um, distance away from the United States. But over time, as China develops, you know, its confrontation with Soviet Union, the famous Sino-Soviet split, they began to see the value of these U.S. alliance system in Asia, because in a way, by looking, by working with the United States, you can also work with U.S. allies who are under somewhat under control or managed by stronger power like United States. So when United States President Nixon convinced and Kissinger convinced China of the value of U.S.-Japan alliance, one of the rationale was that United States can keep a tap on the power of Japan. And they didn't want to see, especially at the time in 1670s, they were afraid of emergence of nuclear Japan. And that was one of the threat that uh, Kissinger tried to use to convince Chinese that we are preventing Japan from going nuclear. And at the same time, United States and J- J- Japanese alliance would be also effective in countering capping the power of Soviet Soviet Union. So those two rationales really convinced them of appreciating the value of United States-Japan alliance. That began to change in 1990s when United States was looking to empower Japan more within the context of alliance. Chinese began to see what U.S. was doing with the alliance with Japan was growing the dinosaur in the eggshell because uh, it, it seems to be that Americans are working very strongly with the nationalist uh, lawmakers in Japan, more on the right side rather than left. And by doing so, Chinese saw what U.S.-Japan alliance was doing as growing Japanese power, and eventually Japan will break out the, that eggshell. And now that conventional power uh, that China have, I don't know how much they actually care about the U.S. capping the power of Japanese Mm-hmm. I've heard about this from Chinese international relations scholars as the, the idea of the U.S.-Japan alliance as either an eggshell, as you said, incubating a, some highly militarized Japan under the protection of the United States, or alternatively, as a bottle cap. What's the nature of the U.S.-Japan treaty agreement? Is that the whole of the alliance? What are the components of it? What sorts of common defense commitments have we taken on, and how has that developed over time. Mm, Thank you so much. So, of course, the U.S.-Japan relationship is much broader than just military part of the relationship. There are cultural exchanges, educational exchanges. However, when it comes to the security treaty, the big part of it is Article 5 and Article 6. Article 5 prescribes U.S. coming to defense of Japan if Japan is attacked. Article 6 is when there is a regional contingency in the Far East. U.S. can use with some consultation with the Japanese, the areas and facilities in Japan for combat reasons outside Japan. What are the conditions such as they are under which that might happen? Is it, as you said, just something that requires some consultation and that hasn't happened? Uh, Or is there some more kind of built out architecture about how how are we going to cooperate in the event of X, Y, or Z contingency? Like how much can we say about how, how, how are the individual components of the alliance practically managed? What do, we, what do we expect to happen under various circumstances? So if there are any regional contingencies in the Far East, 
in a way that affects Japanese survival and Japanese security, uh, United States will be able to use uh, bases and areas in Japan, facilities in Japan for those combat operations. But there is a Kishi Harder exchange notes from 1960s that prescribe uh, situations under which United States have to engage in prior consultation with the government of Japan before doing so. But Kishi and Harder exchange notes from 1960s that accompany the revised mutual security treaty also prescribe that United States needs to engage in prior consultation with the government of Japan if they were to use areas and facilities in Japan for combat operations elsewhere, directly from those facilities and bases in Japan. So are Taiwan scenarios expressly contemplated in any way in the formal treaty agreements? Uh, and you, you spoke earlier today about the quote-unquote Taiwan clause. Uh, so I hope you can help us understand what, what that is and what role Taiwan specifically plays in the U.S.-Japan alliance. Right. So Taiwan clause is a statement um, and set of statements that Prime Minister Sato made as part of Sato Nixa joint communique from November 1969. And this joint communique was part of the agreement and announcement that U.S. would re revert and uh, return Okinawa back to the hands of Japanese. But in exchange of returning Okinawa, United States wanted some security assurances from United from Japan that Japan would would likely say yes if U.S. were to engage in prior consultation with Japan in the case of Taiwan contingency or Korea contingency. For the Korea clause uh, that was also issued around in that document, you know, Japan was much more explicit about willing to swiftly and forward-lookingly approve U.S. requests on usage of areas and facilities in Japan for Korean contingency. Sato's statement on Taiwan clause is a lot more mild. Um, he says that Taiwan security is important to Japanese security and it will judge, make a judgment based on such recognition. So it's an implicit, implicit saying that Japan would consider positively the request if U.S. were to uh, use areas and facilities in Japan for Taiwan contingency. But at the time... They didn't think uh, they were ready to be so explicit about Taiwan contingency compared to Korean contingency, which has been discussed more often in Japanese dom uh, domestic debates. And so we're, we're talking about the, the origins of this, this Taiwan clause in the context of the late 60s and early 70s reversion of territory that the United States had occupied after to World War II and how that led to one of, one of many, I suppose, adjustments of the alliance relationship over time. And I'm curious whether or not that same kind of status for Taiwan, has that changed over time? And if so, how can we see where where the U.S.-Japan alliance is on this particular issue to date? Right. I think the, the power balance on the Korean Peninsula and the power balance across Taiwan Strait has changed quite significantly. Mm -hmm. When Japan committed to Taiwan, uh, Korea closed, excuse me, uh, that was when 60s and 70s, North Korean conventional power was pretty significant compared to South Korea's. Um, therefore, and especially because they already had ground uh, war uh, on the Korean peninsula, Japanese were concerned that there might be another Korean war. Uh, they, they felt that that possibility might be plausible. Now, 
uh, mainland, China's mainland PRC's conventional power is much more, uh, much, much bigger than Taiwan's. Now they're aware that if China were intent on using force to make unification reality, it would be a challenging process for Taiwan and Taiwan's defense partner, United States, and by extension, Japan, U.S. ally. Right. So it sounds like they're leading us towards another set of questions that I want to ask about Japan's own threat perceptions and their regional security outlook generally. So I want to think about it in the comparative terms eventually, but just looking at this now from the perspective of the contemporary situation in East Asia, how significant do Japanese national security officials view the likelihood of a Taiwan contingency? How significant do they view that in comparison to other regional security threats, North Korea among them? What's the nature of the discourse right now on the urgency and immediacy of that threat? Right. So the, over the last couple of years, ever since uh, Admiral Davidson, former commander of Indo-PACOM, testified before the Senate that challenge to Taiwan or threat to Taiwan might be manifest in the next six years, that has really caused a shock in Tokyo. Mm. And, you know, around that time, I mean, the military presence around Taiwan straight from China was also increasing. Since then, there were many official statements about the importance of Taiwan's security to Japanese interests, just as Prime Minister Sato said. But also in the public level, I think there are a lot more statements made and discussions being held among commentators on TV news and any uh, critics of these issues about the likelihood of Taiwan contingency. Now, the number of mentions about Taiwan contingency has skyrocketed in Japanese public discourse. Mm -hmm. I've done some counting of the mention of Taiwan contingency in Japanese national newspapers. It has jumped from 80 throughout the year to 2,300 in 2021. And now, as of the fall of um, 2022, uh, the number has doubled uh, wow. to 4,800. It's probably continued to add the number. So everyone's talking about Taiwan contingency. Whether people think there will be one is a matter of intent and analysis of intent behind Beijing. But there is at least awareness in Japan that we should prepare ourselves for such possibility and and then started thinking about what that means for Japan's own security. What is it about conceivable Taiwan contingencies that implicates vital national security interests of Japan? Right. So I think alliance with the United States has been considered as vital to Japan's national security. It has served Japanese interests and security for a long time. Um, we have very good relationship with the United States. 98% of Japanese public now answer that United States and Japan alliance is very, very important for the country and for the region. 98% is a really significant number in any public polling in democracy. So that is sort of set stone understanding of importance of alliance. But having that alliance also means that we have bases in Japan and those bases will likely be used if there was any contingency around Taiwan, of course, upon prior consultation. But if that was the case, Japan will be very much likely to be target on military strikes or missile strikes by the Chinese. So that is a sort of understanding of, on the one hand, we Japanese people think 
alliance with the United States is really important, especially for not just a war, war fighting, but also deterrence, right? Strengthening deterrence against many other adversaries as well, not just China, but Russia and North Korea. Mm-hmm. But those base um, presence of bases also makes Japan a target by China. Yeah. So it's basically the, the mechanism is that if the United States is going to be involved in a Taiwan contingency that necessarily implicates Japanese assets, even if they elected not to let the United States use use certain facilities under certain circumstances, that's sort of the, the vector by which Taiwan becomes a high priority. In a sense, it's about Japan's alliance management with the United States. Is that so a- that's one side of the spectrum. On the other hand, I think Japanese also have very strong affinity toward Taiwan. Hmm. Taiwan-Japan ties have been developing. Um, I mean, Japan colonized Taiwan for 50 years. Uh, Taiwan is very, very close to um, islands of Japan. Actually, the Yonaguni Island is only 110 kilometer away from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. It's main island. Uh, it's actually so less than 70 miles, and that's even smaller in distance than what's what's separating between Chinese mainland and Taiwan's mainland. Um, so depending, uh, because of this proximity, geographical proximity and cultural affinity, it's also about Japan's security as much as its relationship with the United States also. Right. And I, I suppose ultimately that that question about Japan's security has a lot to do with the nature of Chinese power in the region. So I wonder, you know, how does the prospect of a Chinese-controlled Taiwan look to Japanese leaders from the standpoint of their national security? If you could hypothetically establish a situation in which the mainland had seized control of Taiwan, Japan had not been involved in the conflicts, is that part of how we should understand what what it is that motivates Japan's interest in the Taiwan issue? Are they is it a question about Chinese power? Is it a question you indicated their cultural affinity with Taiwan? Is there something about Taiwan being another liberal democracy in East Asia that implicates some of those interests? Mm. That's a really interesting question. I think uh, there's a fundamental level of lack of distrust toward China at, mm. at this time. Uh, Japan and China just celebrated celebrated 50th anniversary of the start of diplomatic normalization process. Mm -hmm. Prime Minister Tanaka visited uh, Beijing uh, in September 1972. However, even around that anniversary, there were a lot of uh, Chinese maritime presence in the East China Sea, where two countries have disputes over uh, claims of Senkak Islands, and Chinese call them as Dao. So over... About 14 years or so, Japanese and Chinese have been having this very, very chilled political relationship over security, over food security, and over economic issues and political issues of historical memory. So there's really no trust between these two countries, at least from the Japanese perspective. And having that state uh, that Japan doesn't trust in Taiwan, if China were to take control over Taiwan, that's going to be a source of threat. So back when, when Japan was engaging imperial pose- uh, colonial possession acquisitions um, and expanding its empire, well, the one of the incentive was to secure Korea and Taiwan away from perceived adversarial powers over them. So now that South Korea is a liberal democracy, Taiwan's liberal democracy. That's very assuring that these neighbors share our values. But 
it won't be comfortable for Japan to have adversary power that close uh, in Taiwan or in Korean Peninsula. So it would be a challenging situation if there were power and influence of what Japan perceives to be advers- potentially adversarial power uh, that close in their neighborhood. Right. I guess this all, this all gets at Japanese threat perceptions. And I want to bring us into kind of comparative focus here because it seems to me that some major part of alliance management has to do with managing differences in threat perceptions, ultimately, right? For, for the alliance to be robust and stable, there needs to be some significant confluence uh, of interest on what are, what are vital security threats that demand collective common mm-hmm. defense. So it seems as though certainly there is a there's a broad alignment between the United States and Japan on significant and growing concern about China mm-hmm. in the region and perhaps beyond. Just looking at a map, you'd have to think that's felt even more acutely in Japan than it ought to be in the United States. And yet, in terms of what we hear from both sides, it, it strikes me that the Japanese position on this is a bit more circumscribed or a bit more modest. Uh, you mentioned Admiral Davidson's comments about the seeming probability of conflict by by 2027. How do you assess the differential, say, between the levels or the intensity of our threat perception between, between the U.S. and Japan about the China threat generally or specifically to Taiwan? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think overall, generally speaking, Japanese-American threat perception of China are converging more than ever. Uh, Japanese have had developing threat perceptions of China since 2008, when uh, the Chinese began to send government vessels around Sengaku areas in the East China Sea. At the time, I think the United States was focused on financial crisis, but also sort of might perhaps engage in this diplomacy of new model of great power (laughs) relations of dividing up the Pacific into two powers right. and we'll just make peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jap- Japanese are really concerned what that meant and what that meant for interests of U.S. allies in the, in the region. However, when the Admiral Davidson testified that the Chinese are intent on perhaps invading Taiwan within the next six years, Japanese would also have to carefully assess what kind of information is he getting how serious he is. Is there any domestic political incentive to argue in such a way? For example, getting more budget uh, for U.S. Navy, which Japan hopes that U.S. Navy gets to strengthen itself. So there are many discussions about what, what this statement means. But I think there is a consensus that there is an imminent threat and we should prepare as if there is an imminent threat so that we will maintain deterrence against Chinese. And, but at the same time, Japanese island is not going to go anywhere. Uh, I mean, Japanese have to coexist with China or go to war. So they are figuring out, I think they're glad that China, America is paying attention to China threat and preparing themselves, uh, making alliance systems stronger. But at the same time, now Japanese have to think about then, okay, but the goal is not to fight Chinese, but to ma- maintain deterrence and peace and stability in the region because all, all these countries will stay in the region. United States might be able to just 
withdraw all the forces and be American power, not Pacific power, but these states are still remaining in the region. So now Japanese are shifting toward really thinking about then, okay, how do we as allies manage this situation? Right. And so where, where is Japan on this question of deterrence? This is a conversation that we have in many guises and forms here at the Naval War College. And there's obviously a lot of interesting conceptual as well as practical substance to it. But I guess just to, to flag one particular issue that jumps out at me, effective deterrence requires demonstrating that you have the capability to either deny the military or other political objective for your adversary and those you would credibly use it or to impose some unacceptable punishment that's linked conditionally to, to some act you're trying to deter. And, and I will uh, disclaim that this is not the the, uh, the symposium on deterrence, and we will be discussing that in, in some depth in other episodes. But I'm wondering if you can help us understand what role Japan intends to play right. and does in fact play in, in deterrence. What is deterring China from taking Taiwan specifically, what does that look like from a Japanese perspective? What do they feel they bring to the table right. uh, to to help accomplish that goal? Okay. Uh, so on the public statements level, I think what the Japanese leaders are doing right now is not just to convince the Japanese public that this is a war, this, this could be a war for Japanese people, but by making sure that Beijing understands that Japan has a stake in this, it's making sure that we send messages to Beijing that if you just attack Taiwan, Japanese might be also be involved and Japan and China ties will also be affected. I mean, Japan and China have strong economic ties as well. It, it won't be just quick, easy win for China. It will be a messy, uh, tragic war that won't be good for anybody. Uh, so by making this connection between Taiwan contingency and contingency with Japan and that making sure that Beijing understands it won't be easy when I think that's a message that Chinese, uh, Japanese are trying to send to Beijing. On the more sort of substantive level of deterrence, I think Japanese will bring in substantive amount of conventional power on naval capability. Japan still has one well, of the largest navies in the world. So Having Japan engaged and having that naval power on the side of U.S. will be important in the fighting and in deterrence, uh, sending deterrence signals to Beijing, hopefully. That is a fascinating way to close. And I guess if I could just wrap it up with an observation from your last comment there, it seems like the coherence and stability of the U.S.-Japan alliance, it's, it's functioning as a deterrent in a way. The more credible it is that the United States and Japan are going to act in concert in the event of a Taiwan contingency or some other major regional security crisis, that presumably informs decision-making in Beijing about what the likely costs of that action are. Right. Uh, After all, China might become, might become the world's you know, greatest economic power. China is world's greatest economic power, but they might not want to antagonize both United States and Japan, also both uh, biggest world economies. Put them together, and and I suppose we're really talking about uh, a substantial portion of, of the economic picture that China sees too. So right. all is not lost. I think this was really uh, a terrific and wide-ranging discussion, and we really are, are glad that we were able to have some of your time to discuss the U.S.-Japan alliance and alliance management and the Taiwan issue. I want to thank you for sharing your 
Wealth of Insights with Sea Power today, and we wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.
The views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.